This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton French Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor at Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We're going to be talking global markets today. We have two great guests. One first on the top half of the show talking about some unique country rotation models, how he looks at global markets, what is attractive. Uh, and then the second half, we're going to go deep on Japan um, with the GMO team who who really likes Japanese stocks today, particularly Japanese small caps, one of the best opportunities in, in their view. Um, so it'll be an interesting global discussion. Uh, Professor, though, to start the show, we've got sort of U.S. markets. They sort of hit some new highs. Uh, what's a little bit, little bit of softness today, but how are you, yeah. how are you looking at the, uh, the overall outlook? Well, there are a couple things that I, I think were noteworthy this week. Um, uh, you know, first, of course, the Fed meeting, as expected, but I, I listened closely to Powell afterwards and basically said he's going to ignore the next two months of CPI numbers, which are going to be really high. Um, he does say that if he thinks that inflationary expectations are getting out of hand, and I guess he means by that is looking pretty much at the difference between the tips rate and the standard nominal bond, that they, they, they will act. Uh, but uh, they're not at all ready to act now, and I think the markets took its cue and, uh, you know, have, have been going up. And then we got the GDP report, and um, although the number for this first quarter was not um, uh, different than the economists had expected, it, it was always a little lower than what uh, the Atlanta Fed now is, which I think is a little too optimistic always. Um, but it really sets us up for a real strong second quarter. I mean, uh, with the inventory drawdown, uh, I, I, I saw estimates uh, jump by uh, more than one percentage point uh, to growth of 9%. So, I mean, it, it, and, and, and we now, you know, the chip shortage is getting worse. Inflationary uh, pressures that we read about are getting worse, and we will be getting to be seeing them in the data. The Fed will not act, I don't think, over the next two or three months. The question is, if they continue, uh, then the Fed will have to, have to act. We've been getting some pretty robust earnings. You know, you see the big tech companies, they continue to beat earnings. I mean, anything on how the markets are, are reacting Beating to what's earnings going? by big margins, exactly, yeah. Jeremy. I mean, uh, yeah, and I expect the be- the beats to be even bigger in the second quarter, given the strength of of the economy. Uh, again, uh, there will be cost increases to the firm. I think the firm is going to have firms are going to have no trouble passing those uh, increases on, um, and uh, in the form of higher prices, uh, in order to maintain uh, um, uh, their margin. In fact. For inventories that they bought at lower prices, they'll 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 actually book profits. So you know, again, I, I think uh, you know when we're looking at, at S and P profits this year, I think they very well might exceed the 175 to 80, 180 dollars, and we might get to 190 to 200. We'll see exactly given the strength of the economy, and I think that's exactly what the market expects. Um, we will get a tightening in in the sense of a tapering. I think by the end of the year there will be tremors in the market. But the question, you know, that that's later. In the meantime, uh, the direction for for equities is is definitely higher. Anything latest on tax policy? I hear some people, you know, we focus on the capital gains element. I don't know if you are you hearing anything on dividend taxes. I've I've heard a little bit of rumblings on maybe those also go up. But any any thoughts there? Well, I, you know, basically, 
um, uh, he wants to un uh, Biden wants to uncap for the for the high income people all the preferences. Uh, now capital gains preferences have been on for a hundred years. Uh, dividend tax uh, dividend tax preferences have only really been on since uh, the Bush administration. Um, uh, and uh, but uh, he's not going to get all of them. He's going to. You know, we talk about a revolutionary plan. Really, it's going to unwind some of the Trump tax cuts on the corporate side, particularly, and some of them on the personal side. Um, I, I, I do. The market, although flutters a, a little bit, um, uh, there are, there are enough conservative Democrats who are going to have to sit down with them, and they're going to get a pack. They're going to get a package too. That's going to be much more moderate, which is what we've been saying, what experts have been saying all along. So, you know, uh, despite all the, the hype that you hear in the media about, uh, you know, uh, you know, sharply higher taxes, um, uh, I do not believe that uh, that they will come true. But there will be an unwind. There will be a tax increase. There will be unwinding of many of the Trump tax uh, increases, plus some of, you know, like uh, I see that they're trying to take care of uh, real estate and kind transfers, which have always been a big re- leap, uh, loophole for the real estate industry and avoiding capital gains tax. Stepping up the basis on the estate tax is another uh, big uh, big thing. I'm surprised I didn't, we haven't seen yet a, a reduction in the exemptions, uh, but all that is in the mix. All that, the Dem is going to sit down and they're going to negotiate a package which they're going to get through by uh, reconciliation. And that package is going to be much more moderate than, than the, the headline starting points that, uh, that you read in the press. Very good. Any other closing thoughts? Sure, this has been a great kickoff here. Yeah, great kickoff. Next week we get the employment report. Expected 900,000 uh, increases, uh, some more manufacturing reports uh, that uh, uh, ism reports we're going to look at the prices on those um but the employment report will be will be the big item i think uh, for next week well professor thanks always to, to kick off the show thanks for so much thank you we are going to have a great conversation um we're going to turn it to our guest um we have uh silish radva who's who's a a focuses a lot on international markets. He's the founder and chief investment strategist at Borealis Global Advisory, known as BGA. He looks at forecasts for yields using a, a, a methodology we talk a lot about on the show, the CAPE ratio. Um, Silish, welcome to Behind the Markets. Hey, thank you, Jeremy. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and Borealis and, and, uh, and, and what you guys focus on? Uh uh, Jeremy, uh, Borealis Global Advisory is a uh, an analytics firm which focuses on developing uh, country selection strategies using uh, data-driven methodologies and some ex- uh, to some extent uh, machine learning methodologies as well. Um, we started off uh, with a with a term we coined called a smaller version of CAPE, specifically adjusted T, which is a modified version of Schiller's T as our first rollout of our product. And uh, we have uh, built a couple of dashboards related to that, and that's our first venture as a startup. And we are basically rolling out more country selection strategies uh, down the down the line. So smart cape, um, as the S cape, as you call it. So let's let's go into what makes your cape smarter than Schiller's cape. What are you, how are you trying to modify it? All right, uh, uh, Schiller's P, as you know, which came off from the Graham and Dodd kind of a. Uh, thesis, which was developed in the 1930s, which uh, Schiller modified it into the current form, but has its it has its own uh, flaws, inherently flaws, especially in an international setting. And the first of the challenges which I, we thought at Borealis was that Schiller's fee has never been uh, developed to d- define finite expectations, return expectations at all. One, second. Even though the various adaptations of Schiller's fee have been used in the international setting, mostly in developed economies, uh, there's a couple of papers that have been put out by uh, Keemling way back in 2006 and 2012. They've applied it in developed kind of a, a setting. But the challenge was when the, uh, another gentleman, Clement, uh, basically analyzed uh, uh, Schiller's fee in uh, emerging markets, it is, it is, it's very challenging for them to basically make forecasts. And another challenge 
which Gillespie has is basically it's a long term kind of a uh, 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 it forecast in the long term, rather than 10 years kind of a scenario. And it is more of a valuation measure thing. It's whether it expresses it in terms of overvaluation uh, or uh, undervaluation kind of a thing, but nothing concrete in terms of finite expectations. So what um, Borealis did is we took Schiller's fee and basically to make this applied, this is be applied into international settings, we basically combined Schiller's fee with cyclically adjusted real exchange rate. Because one thing, which single threat, an economic threat that ties all the country in this investment universe is real exchange rate. And why did we pick real exchange rate? It's very simple because, for, especially for emerging markets, how do I capture the attributes of uh, the investment attributes of the emerging countries? The biggest thing is the real exchange rate. Why? Most of them are commodity based countries, most of them are export oriented countries, and the relative price of any Export or export, exported or tradable good is basically a function of native price, uh, a normal exchange rate, productivity of the country, and the inflation. And RER captures that. And by capturing RER in a cyclically adjusted format, is the same definition as we do it for Schiller's C. We we are able to improve the explanatory power of Schiller's C in forecasting returns in any country in a shorter time horizon. I, I call it as a medium term kind of forecast horizon, which is basically greater than two years and less than 10 years kind of a time frame. We're able to do that. And also, if you look at uh, uh, by, by adopting real exchange rate into, into or coalescing it into the cyclically adjusted PE, which is Schiller's ratio, we are able to ex- expand on the uh, explanatory capabilities of Schiller's P. But there's also at any point, there's a momentum cycle happening, especially in that kind of horizon, maybe two to 10 years or greater than 10 years. There's always a momentum reversion. So we captured in real terms a momentum reversion factor, which is that past underperformers uh, on a look back of a window of three to five years, they would definitely outperform in the following three to five years kind of time frame. We captured those two to express Schiller's P in a different format. I've done it in terms of yield format, and I call that as medium-term country yield forecast. It is not exactly a point-in-time measure. It's more of a relative measure, and you'll be able to rank countries, screen countries across the investment universe and rank them. And it will also be a good investment tool, uh, a tool in, a, invest, in advisors or money managers' toolkit to evaluate countries. Well, yeah, let me I'm, – I'm looking at one of your reports, and, uh, you know, you show – you know, you have about 40 years of research. It looks like one of your times start back in 1980, ends in 2020, um, and you sort of show if you use your your smart cape, this S cape, to do either quintiles or you do you know and you have five quintiles and you stack rank them, and it's it's pretty monotonic between the top quintile, and the bottom quintile. Then you have your your top two quintiles together, and just to give listeners a sense, you know, the top quint top two quintiles you had 15.7 as the return, and the bottom two quintiles 5.5, so a thousand basis points. Um, between these these groupings, when the, the the equal weighted was closer to eleven, so pretty big dispersion there. Talk about how how much you think what drove these relative returns. You know, is it an improvement in the model over traditional ways? What what was it the enhancements to the real exchange rate? Was it other parts that momentum factor you just talked about? What what was the key drivers? The key drivers uh, uh, comes in two two sets. The first set is real exchange rate. Um, in the previous iteration or adaptation of Schiller's P, we are not able to precisely define the characteristics of the, uh, the emerging markets in terms of the export-oriented countries. And the real exchange rate uh, was able to do that and capture them in a timely manner into a quintile. But the second thing, and people forget it, is that uh, outside of the United States, and there are basically uh, very few countries which have got market cap in terms of in terms of ACWX, which is the MSCI All Countries World Index, excluding US, very few are greater than 1% of the market cap. And a lot of these countries are falling that trap of the less than 1% of the market cap of their ACWX. And what you should understand that these, some, these countries, uh, we were talking about the Philippines and the smaller, the Taiwans and all the Indonesias and all that, you see that they are not market leaders. They are not market leaders. They are governed by the economies around them. So they basically follow 
the trends around the economies around them. And I was able to precisely do that, capture that because of the momentum variable. We are able to capture them better. And if you look at it, you were look at the maps across across 1980. These small markets, which are less than one percent of the market cap, they are market leaders only for a year, and then they go down uh, go down to the bottom of the quintile. So basically, momentum plays a major role. It is not the fundamentals of this economy, but it's basically what goes around their uh, economy. So we are able to the Schiller's P, modified Schiller's P, is able to capture two things: the big export-oriented emerging markets to RER variable, which is cyclically adjusted the real exchange rate, and the momentum variable, the small emerging countries, which don't are not market shakers, and we're able to capture them better at a timely manner. Let me just reintroduce our guest. We're talking with Silas Radha, who's the founder, chief investment strategist for Borealis, Borealis Global Advisory, about his Smart Cape enhanced Schiller metrics for for looking at real returns. Silas, if you looked at where the world is attractive today, you know how do you how does the U.S. compare to the rest of the world? Um, well, everybody says the Cape ratio is high. Um, does that mean the U.S. is is a poor place to be on your outlook? How do you think about the rest of the world compared to the U.S.? Uh, in terms of U.S., I slowly am seeing some rotation happening, and I'm seeing some uh, light at the end of the tunnel in the international uh, arena and the international setting. And the, the most prospective country, I think, among, among the developed countries outside the U.S., I feel Japan is showing signs. Uh, definitely Japan is showing signs. And as we come out of this coronavirus kind of a pandemic, I have a lot of faith in the Scandinavian countries, if you look at my valuation. And I'm very, very bullish in terms of uh, Finland, I'm bullish about Sweden, I'm f- f- bullish about Denmark. I have a lot of, that's the kind of uh, focus, especially on the European side. And the, of course, Canada is definitely outside the U.S. It's a very bright, strong prospect for the next uh, five to eight years kind of a uh, time frame. And also in the Asian market, I have uh, uh, the model predicts uh, Singapore and Korea are having a great uh, future in that kind of a time frame. Uh, but uh, with the stimulus, uh, the stimulus money coming in, and with the Biden's infrastructure planning coming into the U.S., inflation may sh- might show its ugly head. But in the long-term prospects, I think there's still some juice left in the American uh, stock market cycle, which began in 2009. So interesting uh, uh, tour de force around the world on which countries where you like. Is there something about the different regions if you go from Europe to Asia? Is it more the stocks? Is it the currency model? Where, what's what's flashing green for you there? My uh, the the strongest uh, the strongest influence I think uh, for me of all these countries which I mentioned is Europe. Uh, Europe is where the 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 future is in terms of in the medium term kind of a. Uh, time frame. When I say medium frame, I'm talking in terms of the two to eight year kind of a time frame. And it's basically because, uh, because of the valuation aspect of it, purely through valuation. Uh, in terms of, in terms of uh, Korea, the Asian countries, it's purely a exchange oriented play. And, uh, uh, and it's basically in, in, in part, uh, it's going to be driven by the growth in the Scandinavian countries and in North America that drives some of the economies in uh, in uh, Asia, especially Korea and Singapore. So the the model is looking at maybe you could go into the the real exchange rate model. Tell tell our listeners people who aren't used to sort of valuing currencies like they value stocks, you know, with ca- discounted cash flow models. How are you valuing these real exchange rates to say you know one is a, a sort of more interesting opportunity? Uh, when you uh, so if you if you if you take take my take the attributes and the way I I have captured this is a cyclically adjusted real exchange rate. I compare the real exchange rate to a trailing 120 months, which is nothing but a 10 year uh, trailing uh, uh, a real exchange rate of a particular country. And the more weaker it gets, the more weaker it gets, a currency gets, uh, the exports of that or earnings of that particular country uh, rise. And as a result of which, for a given given price. For a given price of a, uh, of a particular country in terms of the index, the earnings the earnings go up, and as a result of which the price to earnings decline. So basically, uh, uh, the real exchange rate, if you look at it, is also a pseudo value factor. Uh, cyclically real, real a cyclically adjusted real exchange rate is nothing but a pseudo value factor, and that's how it adds to the explanatory power of the valuation. 
So uh, that's what's well, interesting. You, you just described it as the the exports go up. So maybe it's actually like a earnings growth factor, like that the future earnings is it that the future earnings are going to be higher than they were historically. Yes, historically, yes. And so the earnings are going to go up uh, compared to the historical historical uh, historical values. And so that's so that's that, that's how it it plays out into the growth growth aspect as well, and also from a value aspect too, because the prices. For a given price, the E has gone up. The earnings have gone up. So basically, it's the earnings potential uh, which goes up. And it, it factors into a peg ratio, too. Uh, and the forward peg ratio, too, it rises up. Right. No, it's, it's really interesting. So um, are there currencies that you think are... And then you might get some appreciation of the currency, um, potentially. Like, is there is there a... Um, a currency that is it the Asian currencies that are the most undervalued on these models today that they sort of future earnings growth and is that where Singapore and Korea will have some of those uh, earnings tailwinds going forward? Yes, our tailwinds are going to be for uh, Singapore and Korea definitely, and I think it's because of, uh, once once the 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 world global economy, especially the European economies, wakes up from the slumber, you will see that happen. With this will drive the currencies of Korea and Singapore. I think uh, those are the most brilliant spots we have in, this, uh, uh, in the Asian uh, continent uh, because of this currency, which would be a major factor for those two countries. We talked a little bit about what countries you like. What, where would you avoid? What's in? We talked about sort of the bottom quintile being, you know, maybe one of the big underperformers in your model. Who, who ranks in your bottom quintile today? I mean, I think uh, uh, definitely, you know, uh, Argentina has always been, a, Argentina and Greece have mostly have been on the perennial uh, bottom quintalers. Um, and uh, New Zealand, my, my, over the last six or seven years, of, uh, over the last three or four years, my bottom quintile has been more or less static. And if you see the perennial examples for Ireland and New Zealand, you know, uh, Jeremy, New Zealand had its heyday between 2014 and 2016, and it's never gone back up into any of the other upper quintiles. And so that has been the stagnant areas. So there's no surprises there, uh, as you know from the current economic news that you see. Uh, Russia is, my, is the biggest uh, this, uh, the surprise for me. Uh, it's at the bottom quintile, but I think if I were to run this cycle uh, six or seven months down the line, I feel that Russia is where there's a, if you were to look, look at it about six or seven months down the line, Russia is where it's uh, the focus should be. It's going to get into the top uh, top quintile at some point. Are there so and, some of uh, those countries are pretty small, like the New Zealand? You know, that's those are those yeah. are small countries. Are there any big countries that you think are sort of overrated um, in some of these models? Yeah, um, I think uh, uh, my model shuns United Kingdom, uh, which is a significant player in the ACWS index. Yeah, that's South a big Africa, one. South Africa, you state, yeah, big one, and South Africa and Netherlands. I would stay away from them. And, uh, and Taiwan, too. I think I understand what's going on uh, with the Taiwan uh, in terms of if I have to play out the story. And I think another uh, uh, expert on the show did mention about the semiconductor shortage, right? And that's going to slowly play into Taiwan, too. And Taiwan is not, I'm going to stay away from Taiwan for the time being as well. Uh, so the biggest news in the, the worst countries to stay away from, I would say, would be United Kingdom, South Africa, Netherlands, Taiwan. Uh, those are the countries you definitely want to stay away. Interesting. I mean, the United Kingdom, you think about where their currency was. I mean, I remember I was actually just talking to a friend who's in London and I visited her back in 2007 when I think the pound was closer to two pounds to the dollar. That's that's come way down. Now we're at around one, you know, below 140. I mean, it, got, it was lower, but the pound has certainly come down. Um, and, and, you know, sort of with the Brexit, there's sort of some people say UK value stocks. I've seen people say UK value stocks are one of the cheapest markets around. So what what is reading negative on your models for UK? I think in terms of uh, United Kingdom, it's the uh, uh, Shilas, the true inverse cape, which is the uh, Shilas P in the inverted form. That is the, that is the, the play against it. I think uh, historically, uh, in terms of, in terms of the economy as such, the shutdowns they have had, I think structurally, the earnings potential of UK, I don't think so with the break, uh, Brexit happening, uh, concurrently, I think they've got some structural issues that they need to iron out. And so it's basically it's going to play out in the earnings, even though it's undervalued. But I think the earnings growth is where the issue is with the UK. I see. Um, 
and Taiwan, it could be, you know, sort of the tech companies, higher valuations. Is there anything on the currency side in Taiwan or is it really just the valuations also there? It's a purely valuation in Taiwan as well. Um, now, coming back to what you liked, you said, and, we're, and this might tease out a little bit our, our second guest, where we're going to go deep on Japan, but maybe talk through your history of Japan. I mean, Japan was one of those markets that, um, you know, the first half of your study, it would have been one of the most expensive countries. And then, you know, it, it's become cheaper over time. What break down what you what are the factors for Japan today, um, stocks versus the, the real exchange rate component? I think... Uh... I think as you see that uh, Japan had a, I think had had a bad decade, about lost decades, a couple of lost decades kind of a thing. And I think uh, about 2005, uh, my model sees some life into this market. And I think, I think it has to do with the fact that they have worked through their structural issues, and I think it's getting ready to uh, sustain into a, a environment. You can see a high growth from Japan. Maybe it's not the aging population, but I think it's more to do with the productivity of Japan. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's at some point you feel that uh, Japan is going to be more, go, was going to go back to the 80s and 90s as an economic powerhouse from an export point of view. And the exchange rate is what it's basically pushing, would push that. But right now, from a valuation perspective, I think it's looking very attractive in a valuation perspective with currency also get, going to strengthen that, I think you're going to see a, a good decade for Japan, uh, both from valuation perspective and from the exchange rate perspective. Very, very interesting. Tell our listeners a little bit more where if they want to track your country rotation model, you have a website that people can go to. Um, tell us a little bit more how they can find information, stay updated with all of your work on the Escape and these models. Uh, I have, uh, we have basically, Boreal's Global Advisory as part of our venture, we have rolled out a dashboard uh, which is available on uh, countryselection.com forward slash enhanced case. We basically refresh them every nine months uh, because our uh, cyclically, uh, the Schiller's fee or the modified Schiller's fee is basically a slow moving variable. And we are, uh, we are, we produce uh, chart books which we basically uh, send it to our, uh, our subscribers. And that's how we engage with them. And as, we, as I said earlier in the part of the show, that we are still working on about more than, more than 500 to 600 kind of a strategies for which we are trying to convert these strategies into dashboards for users to have a look at to see the evolution of some of these strategies, be it value, be it seasonality. We want to look at it from the momentum perspective, be it from quality perspective. We are, able, we are going to slowly add these dashboards for users to have a glimpse of the global uh, universe outside the U.S. Very, very good. Yeah, so the country selection, really interesting dashboards. And, and you mentioned some machine learning. Where's the machine learning come in? What we are trying to uh, do is, uh, uh, in our multi-factor, for example, uh, what we are trying to uh, uh, develop is strategies where the biggest challenge has been in our multi-factor uh, uh, country allocation methodologies, how do I weigh, how do I weigh these uh, factors? And uh, the, the sta industry standard has been so far to equal weight them. What we are trying to do is go one step forward, extend, uh, glean data from the market and apply it to the factor momentum. We look at the factor momentum and use that to scale it, scale it back to an appropriate weighting strategy. So we're going to have a more effective multi-factor uh, um, country selection strategies. And that's where machine methodology, machine learning methodologies are going to come into play. Well, Silas, this has been a fantastic overview of what you're doing. I mean, I, I have a lot of interest in looking at countries, valuations around the world. This was super interesting. I appreciate you sharing some of your thoughts with our listeners. Uh, thank you, Jeremy, and uh, thank you very much for having me on your show. We've been talking with Silas Ratha, who's the founder, chief investment strategist for Borealis Global Advisory. Uh, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. We're talking with Drew Edwards, who's the head of GMO's Usonian Japan equity team. Drew, welcome to Behind the Markets. Hi, Jeremy. Thank you for having me. Maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about yourself uh, and, and how you got to your position as head of GMO's Japan team and, and a little bit about Usonian. Sure, sure. So um, a little bit about myself. I, uh, I moved to Japan back in 1991 to go to university over in Japan. 
um, uh, you know, as a, I was a long-term, um, as a high school kid, I was very interested in the markets and in, in, in economics and business. And I think at that time in the 1980s, anyone who had those interests uh, naturally had some degree of uh, interest in what was going on in Japan. That was the case for me, for sure. Uh, moved there in 91, um, uh, came back to the U.S. for grad school, went back uh, with Lehman Brothers back in the day, uh, and then ultimately moved to the buy side um, at a firm that was very early on in the trend of uh, engagement and activist investing in Japan back in the early 2000s. Um, uh, long story short, I uh, created a, uh, a firm called Usonian Investments and uh, had the, the uh, opportunity to uh, join forces with GMO late uh, last year and very happy to be here. Well, that's that's exciting. I mean, it's interesting, you know, to 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 go to Japan during like the peak of their bubble period or right after the the, the bubble period. And how, how do you, how do you think about Japan today versus when you were there back in uh, back in school? You know, it's been um, it's uh, today is a very exciting time in the life of an equity uh, Japanese equities investor. Uh, things have changed a lot over the time. I, I arrived. Japan had a you know a famously great party back in the nineteen eighties. Um, and I arrived right as the bubble burst, and uh, I lived there through the uh, hangover period of the 1990s when Japan was, you know, going through a lot of um, restructuring, and, um, uh, and you know, there was um, a lot of tough medicine to take and reshoring balance sheets and so forth back at that time. Uh, but what's exciting today is we are seeing the benefits of the many years of hard work and heavy lifting by management back in the 1990s, you know, out of necessity, following the, the challenges that were created in the, from the bubble of the 1980s, uh, we're seeing improving uh, uh, return on capital in Japan. Uh, and then in, starting in 2012 with the re-election of Prime Minister Abe, there have been some very encouraging policy changes taking place in Japan with the advent of, you know, corporate governance codes and stewardship codes and other things um, that is leading to a cultural shift uh, and change in behavior, both by, of management uh, as well as by investors. And these changes are inuring interesting benefits uh, to minority shareholders like ourselves um, and importantly, perhaps more importantly, to the biggest shareholder in Japan, the GPIF, which is driving a lot of these changes. Um, but these changes combined with deliciously cheap valuations and lots of low-hanging fruit make for, uh, uh, I think, an interesting time for a Japan equity investor today. Yeah, and I want to get into a lot of these micro changes of what's going on in the markets. But from if we stay macro for just the intro part here, um, you know, GMO is famous for their sort of forecasts. And, you know, you were authored a piece recently um, that sort of talked about these forecasts, seven-year forecasted returns where the U.S. markets, GMO thinks, are down almost 7% a year um, in real after-inflation terms, if I'm reading correctly. But Japan value, Japan small-cap value, sort of this piece was an island of potential and a sea of expensive assets. Um, talk about th that model and how you think about the macro case for, for the, the outlook. Sure, sure. And, uh, and this is the result, I think, of a of an interesting um, uh, joint effort by the asset allocation team at GMO uh, that you know uses massive amounts of, uh, of uh, data and from a top-down perspective is looking at Japan relative to other asset classes um, around the world um, and looking at Japan's valuations relative to its own history. Uh, that, and combining that top-down effort with the bottom-up effort of the Usonian team, uh, you know, using our kind of fundamental bottom-up um, uh, uh, equity, you know, stock-picking uh, uh, efforts on our team. And, and what you were re referencing there is that, you know, the result of that combined effort. Um, and from a top-down perspective, what the asset allocation team was seeing is, um, over time, the um, uh, uh, where return on capital in the U.S. averages over cycles around uh, 6% in Japan, where um, uh, investor expectations were lower and management was delivering less. Uh, uh, over time and over cycles, Japan was generating something closer to 3% run-up return on capital. Uh, but they noticed in recent years that gap seems to be narrowing. And, um, uh, and the question by the asset alloc allocation team is, is this a... Um, a 
cyclical matter or a head fake, or is there something more fundamental and secular going on here? And we combine that top-down analysis what, with what we're seeing on the, uh, on the ground, um, you know, anecdotally meeting hundreds of management teams over time. Uh, and what we've been seeing is um, Japanese management has been, in, you know, doing a lot of the heavy lifting for the hard stuff, uh, restructuring, cutting costs, uh, shoring up the balance sheet, um, and what is leading to uh, uh, other kind of endurable aspects of, like, uh, uh, back in the 80s, Japanese balance sheets were ha- uh, highly levered, and uh, the interest expense burden was high. And you fast forward today, interest expense burden has all but disappeared. Japan is largely overcapitalized, uh, and you're beginning to see some of these fundamental improvements flow through in earnings, and it's just leading to a very interesting uh, opportunity from a bottom-up stock picking perspective. So that's the that was the high-level result of that joint analysis you're referencing. No, it's really interesting, and and so I, I think it's you know the one of the returns on capital, and and so there's I guess two things. One is you're talking about sort of profit margins and how are they restructuring. There's also these corporate governance changes and are they, you know, they sort of notorious for leaving a lot of cash and balance sheets. And, you know, the U.S. has been one of these outliers of a lot of dividends, but a lot of buybacks and even more buybacks than dividends. But I think Japan has actually, you know, in some of my work, I think been like the second highest buybacks uh, after the U.S. Is, is that one of the things that you see as a catalyst for these higher returns to shareholders getting cash off balance sheets? Absolutely. I, that is one of the biggest drivers and the lowest hanging fruit, frankly, uh, in Japan. And, you know, the topic of buybacks specifically is quite interesting in that when I um, first moved to Japan in the early 90s, buybacks weren't allowable by Japanese corporate code. Uh, it was an entirely unknown uh, uh, concept uh, in Japan at that time. And then you fast forward to the late 90s, there was some uh, change in the regulations to allow for buybacks. And then you fast forward again to uh, uh, recent years, and you know, buybacks are at an all-time high with uh, significant um, uh, distributions. Combine that with uh, dividends, uh, the payout ratios have been increasing also over time. Um, it's still low relative to what we're seeing elsewhere in the world. Uh, and despite that, you're getting a dividend yield that is, um, uh, whereas you know, Japan historically had low yields, today Japanese yield is uh, at times even higher than what we're seeing here in, in, in the U.S. Um, so there's definitely that uh, better utilize, utilization of cash by returning to shareholders. Uh, but there's also utilization of balance sheets and excess cash from domestic consolidation, which we, we're seeing a pickup, and we expect that to continue to pick up significantly going forward. Um, and just, you know, public to private, go private, MBO type of transactions as well that we're starting to see as another use of cash. Um, and, you know, again, we think this use of excess cash is the low-hanging fruit uh, for the Japanese equities market. We're talking with Drew Edwards, who's the head of GMO's Usonian Japan equity team. Uh, and so, Drew, in your, in your paper where you, so, you show the uh, expected returns, I mean, everybody says EM value is like the place to be. And, and sort of, of course, GMO likes EM value. But the Japan small value, even considerably higher than EM value. Talk about the, the macro case for Japan's small cap and small cap value. Is it, you know, the, one of the, the macro stories is that Japan's got a declining population and people tend to think of small caps as being local to their economy and tied to the local economy. Like, do you worry about demographics, declining population, no growth in Japan? Um, and, and that's why you get these huge valuations that they're just dying companies? No, it's, it's a good Good point. Good question. And and, um, and demographics in, is you know without doubt an issue in Japan. Um, uh, Japan has an aging society and uh, declining population, and there's pressures that come from that uh, in terms of you know health and elderly care and pension funding and labor issues and so forth. Uh, but it also creates opportunities. Um, folks need to be aware of this. Uh, policies from the government perspective need to be consistent with this. Uh, uh, but like I said, uh, there are opportunities that come from that and. Demographics, population decline are not synonymous with inevitable decline in equity valuation. In fact, I've never, I don't know if there's ever been a study that really clearly draws a correlation between national demographics and, uh, and equity values. But in any case, we're investing in, in, uh, not in the country as a whole, but in uh, individual um, companies. And um, we find you know, there are plenty of companies that find opportunities within the uh, domestic um, uh, you know, demographic uh, landscape, 
as well as, um, you know, we're talking about the uh, overcapitalized balance sheets. There's a lot of opportunity for companies to grow internationally by uh, leveraging their um, uh, balance sheet uh, strength. So, um, uh, you know, we, we, like I said, we're finding, we find opportunities uh, in some cases because of the demographic dynamics within Japan. Interesting. I mean, do you think about their, do you view that those small caps have a global linkage? Are they tied to the growth in Asia and, or, or do you see it as more local economy plays? It, it very much depends upon the business model of the individual company. Uh, but Japan is, uh, in the small mid-cap space, there are uh, many gems of companies that have global presence and niche areas, like materials companies in particular and, uh, uh, um, uh, and other industrial manufacturing companies that have a strong global um, uh, presence and are really geared towards global trade much more than the uh, than domestic demographics. On the other hand, you have uh, the locally geared companies that are benefiting from you know domestic consolidation or um, uh, or other aspects that are unique to the the, uh, the, the Japanese market. So it, it really does span the um, uh, uh, you know the spectrum. Right. You can't sort of make one, one general statement. What, is there an area of the market that your team is particularly focused on as is within the small cap value segment? Is there a type of company that you say you tend to be overweight versus benchmarks or, or, just, or what you think is particularly attractive places? I would say for our team, um, while we are sector agnostic, where we have pretty consistently found the best opportunities for our team have been in the industrial space where Japan has a lot of, like I mentioned before, you know, really unique gems that have uh, strong niche presence uh, globally, um, uh, strong market share, very defensible business models, and on top of that, st- great balance sheets that are able to deploy either in uh, uh, investing in you know, further growth or distributing that excess capital back to the shareholders. That's a very common pattern within our portfolio. Yeah, and that sort of ties into the global cyclical rotation you see here with the sort of reopening of the global economy. I think Japan, I'd say, is one of the com- countries most geared to cyclical growth. Um, and so, Mr. Mai looks at it. Yeah, I, I think I think that's exactly right. I mean, we have uh, from a long-term investor perspective a lot of the tailwinds that we're mentioning before, from the policy changes uh, uh, and, and so forth. But from a cl- near-term tactical perspective, I think Japan also is quite interesting in that there perhaps isn't another uh, uh, developed market that is more geared to um, global trade and cyclical recovery than, than the, the Japanese market. Uh, so from a near-term perspective, we think that uh, is also quite an interesting uh, uh, observation. When you mentioned some of the corporate governance changes in the GPIF being you know a large buyer of, of equities and, and starting to influence management in some way, any other governance changes that you think have been a, a positive catalyst? Well, I think um, what is interesting is a lot of these changes are driven by domestic uh, uh, necessity, by domestic need. Uh, you know, GPF is the world's largest uh, pension plan, obviously largely domestic, invested in their domestic market. It is not only you know, foreign minority shareholders that are observing lazy balance sheets and lost opportunities as a result of it. The GPIF is looking at this and saying, um, we need to, we have our, uh, our liabilities that need to be covered and we need to get better returns out of our domestic investment. And that is a, you know, why I would suggest this is very durable change that is happening in Japan because it's domestically necessary. Uh, but uh, out of that is coming a variety of changes such as uh, there's the um, uh, you know, corporate governance code that is governing uh, dem- uh, the directors themselves, uh, uh, highlighting their fiduciary duty to shareholders and need to behave accordingly. There's a stewardship code that is dictating that the institutional uh, investors uh, act in the best interest of their uh, uh, clients, investor clients, and engage with management to generate higher returns on behalf of their clients. So that's a change in behavior by itself. And more recently, kind of uh, working in connection with these higher-level policy changes. There's a change. There's a, um, uh, uh, the Tokyo Stock Exchange is currently reorganizing um, and ratcheting up requirements uh, from a corporate governance perspective, linking back to the corporate governance code, but also um, creating um, uh, uh, pressure on 
Japanese companies to unwind counterproductive cross-shareholdings uh, and not including cross-held shares and other uh, uh, conflicted shares in calculation of um, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, free float market cap. That is one of the criteria in order, one of the, the uh, listing requi- uh, criteria. Um, so there's a whole host of different top-down policies that are happening uh, that are working in a very um, uh, kind of cohesive and synergistic way with each other, uh, but it's driving interesting management change and investor change, which I think is very important, uh, you know, going, uh, uh, looking forward for the Japanese market. Now, when people talk about risks to Japan, I've often heard, you know, certainly demographics is one story. Why do you want to be in Japan in a declining population? They, I, you hear about, in, in a way, the, their bank of Japan has been at the forefront of innovations on monetary policy, and they're one of these central banks that have been buying equities and buying ETFs of equities to get get into the market and sort of, quote, unquote, minimize the risk premium. Now that they've been in the market for so long, now people worry – you know, about their exit plan. And like, you know, it's not like a bond that will just mature off their balance sheet. They have these ETF baskets in. What if they sell one day? Um, what do you hear about the Bank of Japan? Is that a risk factor you're watching? What's your thoughts there? Sure. And um, uh, it is not known today how the Bank of Japan uh, will exit this if they ever will. And when I say that, Japan, the Bank of Japan still has legacy equity investments on their balance sheet from back in the 1990s um, that haven't been unwound. And they have since then acquired, I think, through the recent, you know, these ETF purchases, the uh, BOJ owns now about 6% more of the Japanese market. Um, So um, uh, there is no sign that this is going to change anytime soon. Uh, And even if they cut back on ETF purchases, there's no... Uh, current indication of how that would ever get unwound. There have been hypotheses floated that are quite interesting, such as distributing the ownership directly to uh, Japanese citizens themselves, which I think uh, uh, that and other ideas are quite interesting. But um, uh, at this point, it is it is uh, unknown how that's going to be unwound. And, I'll, and, I, and frankly, from our um, investment horizon perspective, I don't think we will... Uh, in my career, I don't think we're going to see the beginning of this unwinding, to be honest. And what about them trying to generate inflation? Are they doing enough? They sort of tend to put like one foot on the gas pedal, one foot on the brakes with raising tax rates, raising the corporate tax rates, shooting themselves in the foot where they're trying to do fiscal spending, but then they sort of put their foot on the brakes at the same time. Any any thoughts on what they're doing from a fiscal side, the pandemic, how they're navigating through the pandemic and, and all these other fiscal fiscal issues? Sure. I mean, on the pandemic side, it has been, um, you know, Japan has gone from being a, um, uh, uh, you know, a poster child of what, how things are going well. The uh, case numbers were very low initially uh, in Japan. And, um, uh, uh, and it's interesting how it's gone from that to now today, as we've seen the vaccine rollout uh, in other developed markets, Japan has fallen uh, very much behind there. And uh, that is, the, you know, that is creating some political pressure for Prime Minister Suga, because obviously this is not lost upon uh, uh, Japanese citizens, the voters, and um, uh, there is growing pressure to increase the vaccine rollout. Uh, and and that will be resolved here soon enough. Uh, over the summer, we expect to see rapid deployment. But as we sit here right now, Japan certainly has fallen um, uh, behind in, in that respect. Um, in terms of Inflation and are we is BOJ doing enough? And you know the, the notion of putting uh, one foot on the accelerator and the other foot on the gas. Um, I mean, indeed, Japan is desperately trying to create inflation and have been trying all sorts of uh, monetary policy experiments in order to do so. And it hasn't happened. Uh, hasn't happened yet. Uh, what is interesting is Japan has gone from being a, um, a deflationary outlier to a zero inflation. Um, uh, Roughly in line with all uh, developed markets, has become much more of a kind of a global uh, issue um, uh, these days. Um, uh, but indeed, you know, Japan would benefit from inflation. Uh, they haven't been able to generate inflation through the policies thus far. And you know, I have uh, mixed feelings when it comes to the uh, you know the foot on the uh, 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 brake concept of taxes uh, in Japan. And in the sense that ordinarily, in a market like the U.S. 
I would say a consumption tax hike, particularly when trying to generate uh, inflation, is counterproductive. Um, and I would, so as a general matter, I would agree with that. In Japan, I'm not so certain in the sense that you have, you know, back to the point of uh, aging society, given the demographics of Japan, there is a need to shift from the direct income tax to an indirect consumption tax as folks are retiring, not earning, and consuming more. Um, at the same time, at a country like Japan with excess savings, I see that um, taxing the savers, uh, especially if you could figure out a way to do that to the corporates, uh, and encouraging deployment of that cash and putting that capital in the hands of the government, which for better or for worse, will spend the money, um, there, I see there could be ancillary benefits of that. So um, uh, it's, uh, uh, I think there's, it's a kind of multi-factor equation, and it's not clear to me how that, uh, you know, the, the, the pros and cons of that play out. I mean, Japan has been at the. I mean, they're forefront because they they they've been through it first. So it's like an interesting playbook through the rest of the world. They were an extra, interesting experiment with the money printing and you know all the fears about all this buying of bonds um, is going to lead to rampant currency depreciation. Yet the yen doesn't go anywhere. Um, you know, it's an amazing amazing situation. They have negative rates and and they're able to. Well, that's the negative rates. The whole issue, um, you know, for the banks and but you know should they should be borrowing as much as possible if it's if it's making their debt sustainable. Then you got the BOJ buying it. I mean, it's sort of interesting of how this is going to play out to the rest of the world. I think so. I think so. And in many respects, we can kind of watch, observe how things are playing out in Japan and use that for the, you know, the playbook uh, in the rest of the world. I think where Japan is a bit unique, and in my view, um, I think uh, it's from the mind of a simple-minded equity investor. I'm not an economist, or um, uh, so discount this accordingly. But it, to me, it seems the issue in Japan in terms of generating inflation is that you have resources that uh, you don't – there's not enough velocity in the resources. And I think that's true from a cash perspective, um, which is what we're trying to accomplish through monetary policy. But it's also true from a labor perspective. You have employees that remain at their employer and don't pursue new opportunities um, in return for higher compensation. And as a result, uh, companies aren't inclined to pay their employees more because there's not a threat of them leaving. And similarly, you have um, a lot of intellectual property uh, on the shelf in Japan that's not being, you know, uh, pursued either for, uh, you know, royalties or whatnot. And if we can get the resources, uh, greater velocity of the resources, free up these excess resources, I think then you'll start to see a pickup on inflation uh, in Japan. But I think it's going to take more than the monetary policy. And perhaps that is a little bit of a distinction between what we see in Japan versus other, you know, other markets. Well, that has been a great wrap to our conversation. Uh, we've been talking with Drew Edwards, who's the head of GMO's Usonian Japan Equity Team. Really interesting look. Uh, great show. Thanks, Drew. Thanks for our first guest, Silish. Our producer, Patty Hall. Our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. You can follow us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.